Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining me. And on tonight's show, we have Marcus Bogdan from Blackmore Capital looking at why Ramsey Healthcare stock price has spiked 20% in a day. And if I asked the question, is this actually a good omen for other healthcare stocks like CSL? Then Dan Annan of Cosmos Asset Management tells us about the first local Bitcoin ETF to list on the ASX. That's going to be next week. It's a very, very interesting um, innovation for those people who've been interested in having a crack at Bitcoin. And then we have Ying Yan Cheng from Cool Bar Capital. And she tells us how many interest rate rises her boss, Chris Joy, expects for the year ahead. And we look at other issues concerning interest rates. That's the show. Let's kick off with Marcus Bogdan. Thanks for joining us, Marcus. Terrific to see you, Peter. So, mate, uh, some good news for some of the, the stocks that you hold in your fund. And, you know, probably a few months ago, you told us you really like Ramsey. Just for those people who have missed the, the story, what's happened there with the, the, the Ramsey share price and the reason behind it? So the Ramsey share price has gone from around $64 to $80 yesterday based on a consortium bid led by uh, you know, the very famous private equity group uh, KKR in consortium uh, with uh, HESTA, which is a large industry health fund, uh, making a bid for Australia's largest private hospital operator, Ramsey. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it is opportunistic because uh, Ramsey for two years um, has been greatly affected by the pandemic in terms of uh, number of patients that have been able to treat, elective patients have been able to treat through their hospitals uh, and their prized sovereign assets and they're taking advantage of that whilst earnings are depressed uh, to make a bid. There's a question I always have to ask when you get a bid like this, is it likely or possible that another potential buyer might come out of the woodwork? Quite, I mean, quite possibly we've seen a number of assets that have been contested uh, and this and these assets are incredibly value, valuable given their position that they are not only in the Australian market, they're the, the second largest private hospital operator across Europe uh, and have got a significant position in the UK as well. Uh, and these assets, um, these healthcare businesses are facing record levels of patient backlogs. Uh, and so the, the ongoing demand for the next sev several years is significant. Uh, and so that's why they are at attractive uh, and it could well lead to uh, another company or another group coming in to look at the assets. However, you know, there are a number of hurdles that, that they need to get through. Um, they need to get uh, foreign direct investment approval. Uh, the Paul Ramsey Foundation, uh, the founder of Ramsey Healthcare, um, still uh, that foundation owns around 19% of the group. And so I think KKR have been uh, very considered in the way that they've been working behind the scenes to get obviously uh, very valid consortium partners in place, such as HESTA, and also probably discussions with the foundation as well, which is critical to the success of, of any bid coming up. 
the fact that this is a, a key health asset and um, a very astute private equity group like KKR sees the potential value, what they pay today, presumably they think is going to be a lot less than what they could get in the future. Yes. Is this, is this ultimately leading to a, a relook at our health assets, uh, companies like CSL, Cochlear, ResMed, and all those as a consequence? And, or are you suspecting that that could be what follows as a consequence of this, uh, this bid? It is opportunistic to be looking at the healthcare sector because it is significantly under-earned over the last two years through the pandemic. Uh, and these are, in Australia particularly, uh, these are world-class assets that, we're, that we've got in a world-class healthcare system. Uh, and so in more normal times, uh, they're delivering uh, in an essential uh, um, service, uh, you know, large-scale opportunity, uh, which are particularly attractive, I think, for cashed up private private equity. And I think Ramsey is uh, a very strong example of the attractiveness of these assets. Okay, so that's the case of, um, of uh, Ramsey. Uh, what's a company like CSL been doing on the market as a consequence of, of this action? So yesterday, uh, there was an uplift in the health in the healthcare uh, sector across across the board, uh, and you know the other names, whether they be in pathology, diagnostics, or or in pharma, were all beneficiaries uh, of the the interest in in Ramsey that we saw yes yesterday. Hmm. Yeah, I'm seeing CSL is up a quarter of a percent today. It's going to be yeah. very interesting to see because. You know, I have been arguing on this program that the healthcare, a uh, bit like tech, have been really smashed and you mm -hmm. kind of expect eventually, for the reasons you pointed out, that they were hamstrung by the government restrictions uh, to try and get rid of the, the pandemic problems. They, they have, in a sense, a pipeline of business that ultimately should go and help their bottom line, ultimately their share price. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out, Marcus. Mm -hmm. Some other companies in your fund, that's a Swiss mm -hmm. growth fund, have also reported. What's the story from them? So both um, Brambles and Endeavour have updated uh, their sort of their quarterly um, numbers today, uh, and pleasingly, Brambles are uh, seeing revenue growth of around eight percent um, across the group, and so they've. They've got operations most significantly in the United States, Europe, and Australia, and they've upgraded their guidance not both by revenue and earnings. And so that's particularly pleasing because the company is demonstrating pricing power, the ability to increase prices uh, whilst costs, costs are rising, but being able to push that through onto their end, end customers. Uh, and so you've seen a, a, a nice uplift in Brambles today in recognition of that upgrade. And, and was Brambles in the fund for its potential dividend or its potential capital upside? Um, it's a, what we would classify as, as, as a, a classic defensive industrial company, uh, which delivers resilient earnings. And, and then obviously that with that earnings growth, um, growth in, in dividends as, as well. So it's, it, it's, a, it's, it's a combination of both earnings growth, 
stability of earnings plus dividend. Okay. So what about Endeavor? Endeavor was the the, the breakaway, if you like, grog business from yep. uh, from Coles. Yes. Uh, and it's now uh, on its own. It's, it's listed yeah. uh, on yeah. its own. Yeah. You're, you're holding it primarily as an income play, I've always thought, but maybe maybe there was a, a growth play there as well. What, was the report probably better than you expected? Um, the, the report was in line, but um, and well, um, Endeavour was spun out from from Woolworths, and so that's the Dan Murphy. Sorry, I said Cole, yeah, I the, yeah the Dan Murphy BWS yep. businesses and the hotel business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, what we really were watching there is the recovery in the hotels business. Uh, and in the last seven weeks, uh, that recovery has been robust, um, which is, which has been good. Again, it's a very stable company. It's the industry industry leader, uh, and it's performing very, very soundly at the moment. Mm. It's interesting, mate, that you know we've talked about businesses that potentially would benefit from the world getting back to normal. And obviously, the, the hotel business is getting better and better. They still mm-hmm. struggle from the fact of they've got a lack of staff. Yes, uh, and, that's, and also their costs have have really gone up. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see other businesses out there that we that may will benefit from the fact that the pubs are doing well. I'm I'm thinking to myself a company that I've kept my fingers crossed will improve, namely Tyro. You know, you right. go to those pubs and they're using yeah. Tyro machines and stuff like that. So yes, that kind of knock on effect will be interesting to see how it plays up over time. Plays well. In- yeah, indeed. And also what they're seeing uh, with the reopening of the, of the hotels business is not only a step up there in the gaming, but also that the, um, the consumers are actually buying premium products, whether it be cocktails or, or, uh, or, or meals. Uh, so, you know, the Australian consumer is still in a very strong position uh, and they're in a position of wanting to spend, particularly on services now. Yeah, well, all the money that they historically spent going overseas is now being spent on quality, luxury stuff. They yes. can't get cars, so they've got yeah. a lot of struggle. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And great restaurant meals. All right, mate, is there any other... Look, I, I keep getting the question, you know, you know why, are you, why are you so optimistic that the stock market can do well this year? And I, I often say, well, I, I do think eventually inflation will come off the boil. I was listening to the Treasurer this morning speaking at a breakfast in Sydney. He, he too thinks that you know, inflation over time will start coming off the boil, hopefully with the end of the Ukraine war and hopefully with China getting it over their pandemic problems. Now, you are not as buoyant in your optimism about the stock market as I am, but you are cautiously positive, aren't you? Particularly on Australia, uh, and we've mentioned, we've talked about this before, where I think Australia, where we are geographically, and the resources that we've got in agriculture, in energies, in metals, uh, is leading to uh, you know a, a very strong re- uh, recovery, um, and GDP numbers have, be- have been um, revised upwards. Uh, and companies, are st- there's still more positive earnings revisions upwards than down- downwards. And today is a great illustration of, uh, of Bramble's uh, lead- leading that way as well. So as long as we're still in that expansion phase of the earnings cycle, which we are in Australia, 
dividend yields of around 4% are the highest in the developed world. And then we've got franking on top of that. But then, you know, you need to also caution on the fact that, you know, there are a number of challenges still on supply chains, on costs. But then that's why we've got this, this emphasis on buying industry leaders in very strong industries. Okay, mate. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you in a few weeks' time. Thanks, Peter. Cheers. Well, the first Bitcoin ETF is likely to be launched next week. And to talk about this, we have the CEO of Cosmos, uh, Dan Annan. Dan, thanks for coming to the program. Oh, thank you for having me, Peter. Okay. Tell us about this ETF that's going to be launched next week. Yeah. So um, just, just by background, um, you know, Cosmos, we've been working uh, in the market for almost two years to try and deliver access to a Bitcoin or cryptocurrency ETF in the market. Um, and, you know, we've spent an enormous amount of time ensuring that we deliver a product to the market that uh, is institutional quality, um, that, that gives investors, both retail and, and, and institutional investors, access to a cryptocurrency product. And so what we've done um, is basically is partnered with a, tr a tried and tested partner, Purpose Investments, out of Canada. So Purpose Investments listed the first global Bitcoin ETF uh, on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Yeah. And what we've done is created a fund of fund structure whereby the Cosmos Purpose Bitcoin ETF will hold the Purpose Bitcoin ETF. Now, the Purpose Bitcoin ETF, you know, it's about 1.6 billion uh, Australian dollars. Uh, the, the structure of that product uh, is it holds spot Bitcoin uh, that's custodied by Gemini. And as we all know, uh, Gemini uh, has proven to be sort of the global uh, gold standard in custody and cryptocurrency for customers across the globe. Um, and so what we're doing really is delivering a high quality institutional compliant custodian uh, from the spot Bitcoin product to the Australian investor. Okay, so let, let's imagine, and by the way, is this going to be a listed product or a private uh, fund? It's going to be a listed product, so an exchange-traded fund. Now, just to be clear, um, you know, we, where we are with this, this product right now is in trying to deliver, you know, obviously crypto asset or spot Bitcoin or spot Ether product in the market, you know, between the regulators and exchanges, wanting to ensure that you know they were doing everything they can to protect the end investor when the product came to market. So one of the things that you know the market had been waiting on uh, was clearing participants at ASX Clear uh, to come to the table uh, to support the product. So just last week, um, you know, we received word. Uh, it was actually earlier this week. We received word from ASX Clear that they have the adequate number of clearing participants to support the product. Mm -hmm. So what that means are, is that issuers that have product, um, you know, or product applications at exchanges uh, that are ready to go uh, and are waiting approval from the exchanges to quote product have seven days uh, and within those seven days, uh, if they have the green light from the exchanges to move forward, We'll give it a list product. 
So that's where we sit now for all intents and purposes. Uh, Cosmos, uh, subject to you know the CBOE, will be listed in product next week. Okay. I guess people listening to this would hear ASX involvement, uh, a Canadian company that's listed, um, and they think, okay, uh, things are, uh, the, the safety factors are adding up. But I guess the, the, the right question for me to ask you then is, what still can go wrong? Yeah, and, I, and I'm just being objective. Yep. But Purpose is a, is a listed company. It, it, could have, it could meet problems. Um, uh, the ASX would do its best to make sure things are done well. But at the end of the day, you're investing in a speculative asset, you know. That's right. Um, and so there are a, a number of high risks and people need to be aware of that. Is that cool? Yeah, like absolutely. I mean, look, the crypto asset class, as we all know, um, despite being probably one of the best uh, performing asset classes we've seen in, in our lifetime, at least in yeah. my lifetime, um, it's still a, a highly volatile asset class, right? Um, and to that end, I think one of the key things that a financial product like an ETF brings to the table to investors is that you now have a product that you can put alongside your other shares and, and actually have a view into the overall risk that that product brings to the table, right? So in, in, in the past or up until being able to deliver uh, an ETF, for this exposure, either had the options of an unlisted product, or maybe you had an option of being able to go open a wallet to own crypto, right? So if you go open a wallet to own crypto, what that does is that you don't have the full picture in the grand scheme of things on, on how that looks along your other assets. Mm-hmm. Having a financial product that trades just like a share, uh, an ETF, that gives you that exposure, you now can actually see and run analysis on what type of level of risk am I might add into the to my portfolio uh, when I, I, I make an allocation to crypto. Yeah. And from our analysis, and, and I think what the market has started to see is, you know, a, a simple between three to maybe 7% or 10%, depending on your risk tolerance in a traditional 60-40 portfolio can add a substantial amount of outsized return to the overall portfolio. Okay. So for people to understand <laughs> how they might make or lose money with this ETF, it's going to get down to presumably the the wise buying and selling of Bitcoin by the um, the fund manager behind the exchange traded fund. Is that the case? Well, I, so there's there's two things. The fund manager behind the exchange traded fund is fairly important, right? So uh, one, you want a manager that understands the asset class. Uh, Two uh, has basically has a platform that's been tried and tested, right? So one of the key reasons that Cosmos came together is we had a, we have a background in crypto mining. That's how the business really started. Uh, we have a strong background in funds management, and we have a, also a really strong background with ETFs. So putting that combination together, um, you know, we we want to we want to be the preeminent crypto asset manager in the market. Now partnering with Purpose, right? Um, that have been able to deliver the true and tried uh, Bitcoin spot ETF, which listed over a year ago, uh, that has gained institutional acceptance globally, right? Gives us a really strong platform uh, for, uh, at the very least, I think for the investor should, you know, should feel some 
um, confidence knowing that they have that combination of managers behind the product. Okay. So imagine someone comes in next week, puts $10,000 into the ETF, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, over the, the first month, the Bitcoin um, price goes up by 10%. How much of that 10% rise should be should show up in the in the unit price of the ETF? Look, the tracking error for the purpose Bitcoin ETF has been spot on. So we've been reviewing that quite some time before even making a decision on partnering with them, right? And so the, the objective of the Cosmos Purpose Bitcoin ETF is to track the performance of the Purpose Bitcoin ETF. And we will hold the Purpose Bitcoin ETF. So when an investor buys the Cosmos Bitcoin ETFs, what we do is we go buy the Purpose Bitcoin ETF as a wrapper. Um, and so for, to, to that question, you know, the, the, the tracking error of that underlying and holding has been spot on to the price movements of Bitcoin. Uh, and we, we are going to replicate that same performance and tracking of spot Bitcoin. And so, so if, if Bitcoin moves 10%, we expect our expectation is that the Cosmos purpose Bitcoin ETF will also move 10%. Now there is an expense ratio, so you have to factor that into that. Yeah, so maybe 10% minus the, the cost of... The cost of trading and the cost of fees. Yeah. But, and can you give us an idea of what kind of, how many basis points would be involved there? Yeah, look, we're, you know, we're working with the market makers on that, but we, you know, we, we plan to be, I mean, again, for the market maker, you have to ask the question, what instruments do they have to hedge the product? You know, some of them have, you know, great instruments, just, just like being able to go, go short the spot price directly. Right, which gives them a perfect hedge. And so we expect you know, really, really, I think, I think strong schedules on the uh, CBOEs as far as spread goes to be able to support the product. Hmm. But Dan, when do you think you'll be able to, definitive, to definitively say it's going to be 30 basis points or 40 basis points? Um, by next week. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. All right. So, I've asked the questions that seem most logical to be, to be asked by someone who might be, you know, always always hoping to get a bit of access to Bitcoin. I guess the, the, the interesting question would be, what's the minimum amount uh, people can put in? Yeah, so the the the, the set price um, that we're, and I don't know, again, just one of those things where I think it's probably best to start this, making this, you know, have this conversation uh, next week when we do go live. Um, but we've set we've set a, a set price um, that's tolerable um, for for investors to be able to you know you know to get into the game with the product. I mean, what we're bringing to the park really is, and, and what the ETF brings to the table is that now an investor doesn't have to worry about going to basically open a wallet. You know, yeah. remembering their, remembering their passcodes, uh, the the you know the the fear of maybe forgetting that passcode, et cetera, right? Um, that's one. Two, you have a financial product that you can look at it alongside your other assets um, and, and, and define what type of risk you're looking to take on by investing in crypto. Yeah. What, what kind of regular regulatory um, observance is on Cosmos and what it's doing with the, the proceeds of any money that people invest yeah, so that's a great question. So I guess what you're trying to get at is like, where is the where the assets sit? Is that is that the question? Where where yeah, if you, if you, yeah. yeah. So um, and I think this is pretty. Uh, I believe it's in the in the PDS. Um, so we have you know 
a custodian, a world-renowned ETF custodian um, that will be custodying the ETF for us locally. Again, we can discuss more into the details um, of, of that next week. Uh, we have a, a, a strong administrator uh, for pricing the, the NAVs of the, of the product every day. We have a strong market maker that to ensure that investors are getting fair pricing when they buy and sell the product. Um, and so, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, it, given that you know, the, the, the underlying asset is crypto, but we, we've put together a strong, I would say, operational scene and partners uh, to deliver, uh, I would say, you know, to investors, um, you know, a platform for them to get, get exposure to Bitcoin through the ETF wrapper, right? Okay. And so they would have, you know, again, the underlying asset, you know, the spot price on the spot Bitcoin would be custodied at Gemini, right? Um, again, a global compliant um, custody of, of crypto, uh, as we all know, and we're really, really proud to be able to sort of partner with that team there. Uh, we have Purpose, who's been running this fund for over a year, you know, has amassed 1.6 billion in AUD assets. Uh, at one point, it was 2 billion, you know, obviously Bitcoin price have corrected uh, yeah. over the last, you know, couple of months or a year or so. So yeah, well, we're fairly we're fairly um, proud of, of what we're delivering to the to the market, uh, and our goal has always been to be able to deliver access to this asset class for Australian uh, both retail and institutional investors. All right, Dan. I guess my last question would be, you know, um, obviously, if Bitcoin's um, um, price goes up, it would be good for the ETF. Yep. But what what? What are the headwinds? What are the, 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 the kind of nightmare developments out there that, you know, you being a Bitcoin enthusiast, yep. what are, what are the, the threats to Bitcoin? And I've, I've always thought uh, excessive central bank regulation worldwide might affect Bitcoin price, but I'm no expert on Bitcoin. What, what are the, the headwinds that investors should be aware of yep. when they're taking a punt on Bitcoin? Yeah. Um, look, I think one of the, you know, I would say headwinds has always been regulation, right? Um, and what I've seen in Australia over the last year uh, is the one, one, 180 turn of supporters from the regulator, right? There's strong, I think, you know, with any new asset or with any new investment, uh, it's it's important to regulate to ensure that you know they're doing everything they can to protect you know the the end investor for mm -hmm. products that come out, um, and I think as the regulator has gotten smarter around what the asset is and what it does and the potential its potential uh, um, of how we transact in the future, which is essentially what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin is going to change the way we transact, um, you know, in in the world of basically moving away from to your point you know the the central banking system yeah. right um and decentralizing uh currency for individuals mm -hmm. so you know that, that's really that's where we're going with you know that's that's the purpose of of, of bitcoin um but i can i, I can say i can say that the, the fears that we had which was mainly around regulate regulatory support mm -hmm. uh there's been about i, mean, I would say like a full 180 turn on that uh, you know, we're seeing it not just here, but we're seeing it globally, right? Um, we're seeing, you know, uh, Janet Yellen, uh, you know, being super supportive about it. We've seen local regulators being super, super supportive around the crypto asset. 
and everyone is just really, and I think as more and more gets, as more people get smarter about what this technology is going to do for us, uh, I think we'll, we'll start to see more confidence. Now, the, again, the asset class is volatile, right? And so like, I think as an investor, it's, it's upon you. And again, we have ample resources for you to get smarter around what the asset class, uh, the volatility around the asset class and how to think about that asset class as part of an asset allocation in your portfolio. So therefore, on one hand, you're saying that the, the threat of central banks banning Bitcoin, that's no longer a, a, a worry for you. The flip side I would ask is if central banks start producing cryptocurrencies of their own kind. Then it's not the decentralized. Short, yeah. That, but it's in the not, short it's not, right? it's, not de it's not decentralized. Yeah. But, but if they did that, in the short term, you'd have a rival that people might want to invest in a safer kind of cryptocurrency. Yeah. But would you think over the, long, the longer term, Bitcoin would then be perceived as being like the, the Rolls Royce of cryptocurrencies, uh, while the other, which, well, Rolls Royce might be the right, the right terminology. It, it would seem to me that the safety. I, 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 yeah, I see where you're going with it. And if I think, you know, like, you know, what are the threats of central banks and, and countries creating their own digital currency, which is, which is, but again, again, if if they did that, then we're we're back in the same system that you know Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is trying to achieve, right? Mm -hmm. Which is decentralized finance, mm -hmm. right? Now, I, I I see digital currency sort of being part of economies, um, but I also see the need for Bitcoin. Um, and, and the way it's structured, all right, to allow for uh, individuals that want control of their of their finance and their currencies and and and, and countries that don't want to be dependent on, I would say, you know, G seven countries or you know, top relying on you know one country uh, similar, you know, let's USD. You know, a lot of emerging market countries are relying on the US dollar on how the economies operate right uh, and as we all know globally you know there's been you know massive printing of of uh of of dollars which has created this enormous inflation and who does that hurt right it hurts these emerging countries that are relying upon this the us dollar to actually operate and most of them are trying to pull away from that so i, I can see you know a world where emerging countries gravitate towards bitcoin and you know develop nations you know create their own digital currencies and the, and it can be interchangeable again that's you know that's my my view of sort of how things can evolve over over long term but from where we are today i i don't see you know i, I think we're moving in the right direction of acceptance of bitcoin uh, being part of, of our of the way we transact okay dan thanks for joining us and um be interested to see how it all goes next week thank you very much Well, joining me now is Ying Yi and Cheng from Coolabar Capital. Good to see you, Ying Yi. Good to see you, Peter. All right, a lot of stuff's been going on since we last talked, and there's speculation that the Reserve Bank might raise interest rates in June. A lot of the banking economists agree with that uh, sentiment. What's the uh, view 
from Kuluba. Yeah, we, we tend to agree with that view. So yes, the RBA has signaled that they are likely to hike um, and that they're ready to do so. Um, obviously, you know, we have the May election coming up, as you are well aware. So it's likely that the RBA will go after that. So it could come as soon as June in terms of the first rate hike. Yeah, okay. Uh, would that first rate hike be you know, um, 15 basis points to round it off at 25 basis points? It's likely going to be 15 basis points to round it off to 25, and then they're probably thereafter 25 basis point increments. Okay. Now, the increments, is, there's debate out there. Um, I think the most aggressive economist I've seen says eight rises in a year. Um, Tim Tui from uh, Yarra Capital thinks more like three is going to be on the cards. What, what's the view from Coolabar on, on the number of rate rises in a year? Yeah, so the view at Coolabar, whether it's from, you know, Chris Joy, our Chief Investment Officer, or Kieran Davies, our Chief Macro Strategist, or even amongst the team, the broad consensus from Coolabar is actually, yeah, two to three rate hikes in terms of this year. Um, eight hikes is probably too much. Yeah. Um, I must say that the, you know, wage and inflation outcomes currently in Australia are much more benign than the US, so we can't put it on the same scale. At the same time, with all of the leverage in the system in the Australian economy and the fact that, you know, mortgage rates, most people in Australia actually have, you know, floating rate mortgages. Sure, the makeup of fixed rate mortgages really went up um, post, you know, March 2020 because a lot of the banks decided to issue fixed rate mortgages. However, we have a lot more floating rate mortgages than we would have in the US. So hence, they need to go a lot more aggressively in terms of their cash rate hikes than we would. So, you know, one hike here is, is definitely something um, that the Australian economy is much more sensitive to. Yeah, okay. So let's uh, put this in context then. Um, over the, the, the tightening cycle, where do you guys think the cash rate might end up? Yeah, really, really good question. Look, we, we think that the RBA will struggle to hike past 125 or to 150 basis points. So 1.25 or 1.5% mm. is where we think uh, that the RBA will land in, term of, in terms of their terminal cash rate. Uh, and as I said, you know, we have much more benign wage and inflation pressures here. So that's driven by that. And primarily, as I said, a variable rate mortgage market that makes cash rate change is much more impactful. Okay. Yingyi, uh, if the, the most positive outcomes develop over 22, uh, 2022, namely uh, a settlement of the Ukraine-Russian conflict happens, driving oil prices down, and then China overcomes its uh, pandemic problems and releases a lot more of their people from lockdown, so our supply chain problems start to become still an issue, but less of an issue. That to me, to me make, makes me think that inflation could end up by the end of the year if those two things happen, a lower than what is the expectations right now. Would that, if that's right, would that then lead to the, the expectations of the number of rate rises in the US to be peeled back? Is that, is that a reasonable... Um, conclusion? 
I mean, I, I, I can see how you've approached that conclusion uh, and I definitely think it could have a role in terms of, you know, um, lessening the pressure for, like, hikes in the US, although what is driving the hikes in the US is this potential wage and price spiral. So a lot of those supply chain pressures and the pressures coming from oil prices, they only serve to exacerbate what was already happening in the US already, which was essentially, you know, wage prices going higher because they have an incredibly tight uh, job market or labour market as such. Um, you know, you need to remember that, you know, in terms of immigration, although they haven't had closed borders, they have had quite tight immigration policy post-Trump. Um, and so they have a very tight labour market. And look, Australia is not too dissimilar in the same respect as well. You know, unemployment rate is at an all-time low. Um, and, you know, in the US, unemployment is also at an all-time low. So with the tight labour market, unless we have, um, you know, rate hikes to address that potential wage price spiral that could entail, then yes, we, we, we don't really see that slowing down as such. So in terms of the Switzer Higher Yield Fund, how has it performed over the past 12 months? Yeah, so the Switzer Higher Yield Fund has delivered 0.37% uh, net of fees. In the context of the benchmark, it has underperformed its target return of the RBA cash rate plus one half percent. However, uh, in the context of traditional fixed income benchmarks, it has substantially outperformed. So notably, uh, March was a very, very interesting time. So March was actually the worst month in history for the Osborne Composite Bond Index, which is the traditional fixed income benchmark. So that particular index fell by 3.75% just in the month of March, um, you know, and it also had a very poor months over the course of 2021 as well. In fact, if we look at the March quarter, so the first quarter of this year, that index also fell by 5.88%. So that was the worst quarter in the history of that index. And that is a traditional fixed income benchmark. So anyone who, you know, typically would use a fixed income benchmark like that would have, um, you know, would have done quite poorly. Um, in addition to that, you know, if we look at a zero duration index, so 100% floating rate sort of fixed income benchmark, whereby there is no interest rate risk. So most people would say, okay, well, you know, as rates move higher, how am I going to fare? So in the context of the Osman Composite Bond Index, which I just mentioned, as rates move higher, having fixed rate risk is going to be bad for you. That's why we had a negative month and a negative quarter this year in that benchmark. Whereas for us, you know, we did quite, we did reasonably and relatively well. Um, in the context of a floating rate note index, that still had a very poor month in March. So that still fell 0.29%. And the Switzer um, and the Switzer High Yield Fund net of fees was only down about seven basis points or 0.07% compared to the floating rate note index, which actually declined um, in that month about 0.29%. And that was actually the third worst month for that particular index as well. So in the scheme of things, a very, very difficult time for fixed income, but the Switzer it's a high yield fund has done comparatively well. So given that it's a bond fund that goes after 
floating rate bonds with interest rates on the rise going forward, should that be good for the fund? Yes, so it will be comparatively good for the fund versus, say, fixed income benchmarks like the first one that I mentioned, the Osborne Composite Bond Index. And that's how we've always, you know, um, approached our investment um, philosophy. So we prefer keeping what is called interest rate duration or fixed rate risk near zero years because ultimately we do see inflation normalising um, and there obviously is also a concern, you know, around, you know, inflation rising and therefore obviously rate hikes as such. So as interest rates or cash rates move higher, the underlying coupon of the bonds that we own inside the portfolio will also move higher. So the income will also increase as a result. Whereas if you were in a fixed rate fund, that would be a completely different story. That was Ying Yi and Jen of Coolabar Capital. And that's the show for this week. Uh, we're not operating on Monday. It's a public holiday, but we will be back in action on Thursday. I hope we see you then. And if you're interested in getting more analysis on stocks, have a look at the Switzer Report. Go to switzerreport.com.au. Thanks for joining us. See you.